Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, almost, almost two years ago I was taking Mary Jane to Wilsonville for a medical procedure. I picked her up at her house over on Manor and I plugged the address into the GPS and we headed out. When I got to Maine, I turned right and headed south. And that's when the GPS got upset. <laughs> Which is, of course, why I turned the audio off, because I don't want to listen to that noise. But what I want you to picture in your mind is what the screen looks like, right? At the top, it says calculating, or yours may say recalculating. It may flash at you, right? Well, immediately, the purple path that I'm supposed to be following makes a left on 11th, and makes another left on Pacific, and goes back up to 3rd, because the GPS is absolutely sure that the only way to Wilsonville is Highway 6. Well, as we drove out of town, another calculating appears, and this time it wants me to loop through McCormick Loop and around back to 6, and, and then we cross the Trask and calculating, try Long Prairie. By the time we get to South Prairie, it's make a U-turn. And so all the way through Pleasant Valley, it keeps going. Turn, return. We get to Green Timber Road. Circle back on Yellow Fur, return, would you? Return, turn around, repent. That little purple track, continually reforming, rerouting, returning. It's a great visual representation of the key term in our gospel. Verse 3, No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And again in verse 6, verbatim, unless you repent. Metanoete is the original. It's a compound verb. Noeo is to think. And the meta suggests to think both later and otherwise. There's a strong negative cast to it. The, the previous thinking somehow just isn't right. But in the New Testament, it's more than just thinking. It's think and act. It's the GPS track, turning around and going the other way. Return. Repent, turn around, return. It's a strange conclusion, though, to the two stories that are ripped off the Galilean Gazette headlines of the day, right? Human blood mingled with sacrifice, and towers falling, and the body count rising. Clearly, the news of the day troubled the audience, and Jesus concludes, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, repentance is a strong Lucan theme, starting with the Baptist in chapter 3. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. From the Baptist in 3 to the Emmaus disciples in chapter 24, the last chapter, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And the theme, repentance, finds expression in the first of Luther's 95 Theses. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The reformer elaborates, saying that it means assume another mind and feeling, recover one's senses, make a transition from one state of mind to another, have a change of spirit. Close quote. Repentance 
is not a transaction with God for the temporary relief of shame. Repentance is a turning away from anything that is not right in this world and a turning towards the one who can make all things right. It doesn't matter, really, that the victims in the headlines appear to be blameless. The Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, were obviously victims of a heinous crime that can perhaps best be explained by suggesting that Pilate sent his troops violating all holiness codes into the temple itself and slaughtered the Galilean Jews who were slaughtering the lambs for the Passover. I mean, it's, it's the only occasion when lay people sacrificed inside the temple. A modernization of this incident might go this way. Go to a Christian village in the Lebanese mountains and announce, they came into the church with their machine guns and gunned down the faithful in the very act of participating in the Holy Eucharist. The blood of the worshipers was mingled with the holy wine of the altar. Now, what do you think of that, Jesus? The people bring up this story may have had a, a political agenda, but Jesus sees it in a religious context. He doesn't talk about the sin of Pilate. He doesn't talk about the sin of the Jews, and just not the murdered ones, but all Jews, and we should say all humanity. No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Like the Galileans, like the people of Jerusalem. The strange context, though, as strange as the context may seem, we understand this in our world today, right? On the world stage with the troubled 737 and 346 dead, or the two mosque shootings in New Zealand, another 50 dead. Bad things happen, some on a relatively small scale. Skinned knees, traffic jams, broken appliances. Other bad things are bigger. Divorce, death, disease. Sometimes bad things are the result, direct result of bad decisions. A man gets into his car after all afternoon in the pub. His blurred vision doesn't keep him from turning the key. He pulls onto a busy road, runs a red light, and slams into another car, injuring a young mom and her newborn. Sometimes bad things happen not because of us. A young mom gets into her car, straps in her newborn. She's going to get some eggs at the store. She drives a route she's driven a hundred times. She crosses a familiar intersection. <laughs> Bang. Connecting the dots, though, which is our temptation, crime and punishment will not do. Because Jesus asks, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. In all of this, we do well to listen to Jeremiah. He lived and worked in the twilight of Jerusalem's glory. In Lamentation, he writes, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. And Jesus, in our text, invites us to examine ourselves with a parable. A certain man had a fig tree that had been planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it. There is a remarkable connection between fig trees and repentance in the Bible. The very first fig tree in the Bible gives up its leaves to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. 
when the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked, the first time repentance was necessary, there was a fig tree. And the first step of the repentance is this recognition of sin. Calculating, right? Calculating on the GPS screen. More common biblical use of fig trees, though, is a symbol of prosperity and blessing. The second fig tree we run into in the Bible, we hear about in Numbers 13. And they, that is the spies, came to the valley of Eskel, and they cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them, and they also brought some pomegranates and figs. And once Israel settled in its promised land, we read, and Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. But there's something wrong with this fig tree, right? Look, for three years I've been seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none, the man says. Actually, we can make a good case for saying this fig tree is not three but seven years old. Leviticus prohibited taking any fruit from fruit trees for the first three years. And then we read in Leviticus 19, In the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. It's not until the fifth, sixth, and seventh year that this man could possibly expect to harvest for himself. But whether it's three or seven, it really doesn't matter. The point of the parable is this, the tree is ripe for judgment. Why should it use up the ground? With this parable said in the context of these calamities, Pilate in the tower killing people, being ripe for judgment is a clear call for repentance. Recall earlier from the Baptist, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So if we look at this fig tree and if we take the idea of repentance to heart, what does it look like? Well, the way we budget leaves us living paycheck to paycheck. We have little for those in need. We have the things we're not, but we ignore the generosity that Jesus seeks, the figs on the fruit tree. So we turn away from that greed and return to the Lord. Or we just can't seem to get along with a coworker. He's rude and inconsiderate and quite frankly, just full of himself. Almost every day he does something that makes us angry, but Jesus reminds us anger is murder. So we turn away from that anger and return to the Lord. We cover his shortcomings Jesus' love. Or we never seem to be content. There's always something to complain about. We complain about this or that or another thing. It's always somebody else's fault. Or is it? Jesus places us in community to serve one another. So we turn aside our complaining. We return to the Lord. We seek to be a part of the solution. If we take this to heart, it's not just turn, but return to the Lord. Then we can hear the second lesson of the parable. Isaiah put it this way. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The second lesson is mercy, God's mercy. And we hear it on the lips of the vine dresser. Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Let it alone. The verb here is the most common New Testament word for the forgiveness of sins. Give it one more year of intensive care, digging around the roots, adding fertilizer. It reminds me, reminds me of the prayer of the church for the lost, 
the airing, the empty pews. Knowing the compassion, the mercy shown to us, please, Lord, for my brother and my sister. In a way, the parable is a prayer. It's open-ended. We do not know what happened after one year, but a prayer relies on the mercy of the Lord. The prayer turns away from the problem, returns to the Lord, and trusts in him. Yes, bad things happen, and we're connected to try and connect the dots like the Pharisees. We think calamity is the punishment for sin, but that's a fallacy. Look at the Galileans, or the 18 on whom the tower fell were no worse offenders than the rest of those who lived in Jerusalem. Jesus is telling us these particular incidents of suffering and tragedy are not signs of God's individual judgment. Rather, it's his wrath against all sinful mankind. Suffering is connected to sin, ultimately in Adam, whose sin precipitated all human suffering. If, if we formulate the question this way, why do bad things happen to good people? We already have our answer. There is only one good person, Jesus of Nazareth, and he came explicitly to endure the bad things in our place. He stretched out his arms on the cross to provide the forgiveness for all that we need, our greed and our anger. His open arms forgive us. You are forgiven from greatest to least. His open arms invite us to return to him. In his death and resurrection, there is mercy. In mercy, we have received because the judgment we deserved has already fallen on him. As we sang in our sermon hymn, the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break with blessings on your head. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.